Church, it is good to see you this morning. Daniel, we're glad you had the weekend off so we could have church again. Daniel, Daniel Wright worked the last two weekends, and he just came in to thank me this morning that we had decided to have church when he could come back. So, brother, anything for you, okay? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's the least I can do for those crazy cinnamon buns that his wife brought by the house. Uh, oh, yes, what? It's unbelievable. Anyway, so we are in the book of Revelation, and we are in these letters to the churches. Um, I'm, I'm thankful that we are. I'm thankful that um, we have this portion of Revelation, which helps us understand, and it really does help us understand everything that's going to come later. Uh, it gives us the context. It gives us kind of the, the framework of what's going to follow us. I'm also thankful for this particular passage today because, uh, honestly, church, I've had this sermon written now for two weeks, and it's been rewritten at least twice over the last two weeks. Um, as every week we would something would come up and something else would then happen in the news or something would happen that would, I believe, be very relevant to the passage that... Um, Rick and Karen read us out of Revelation chapter 2, this, this letter to the church at Thyatira. This little church here in this community, there's, there's nothing really special about this. This is the least prominent of all of the cities, and yet it's the longest letter. It, it's the longest of these letters from Jesus to his church. Um, and I think that's very relevant for us today because what I believe is, is really in focus here is something that is more relevant today in our culture and in our context and our church than I think many other things that we could look at. It's interesting. Um, two weeks ago, um, last Wednesday, February the 10th, most of the major news outlets announced the death of Larry Flint. The, you know, he built Hustler from a news little news article, little newsletter kind of a thing into the pornographic, I guess at the time, the largest pornographic company in the world. Um, he died on February the 10th. Now what's crazy about that is that the next day, 24 hours later, those same news outlets published the story that had been kind of circulating within the Christian community for several months, but not much had been said about it publicly and prominently in, in news outlets like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. And, and so 24 hours later after Larry Flynn dies, comes the report that Ravi Zacharias and his ministry all of a sudden is in the headlines. And lots of times when the church is in the headlines, it's there for the wrong reason, right? And that was the case with this. He had spent 46 years as an ordained minister within the Christian Missionary Alliance Church. He had traveled the world in evangelism and apologetics. And his own board of directors, in the report that they published that was in the news, they acknowledged, and this is a quote, that he had lived a double life. A double life. It became clear after he died that in those years, many of those years where he traveled the world, this man who was known as, as such a powerful evangelist and apologetic teacher also was in the business of massage parlors. 
And, and what came out, I mean, it broke my heart. It, it, it should break all of our hearts. His board of directors said, we are devastated by what the investigation has shown, and we are filled with sorrow for the women who were hurt by this terrible abuse. And all throughout this whole time is, is what was one of the prominent ministries in the world. In the world. And yet this is going on. So, just honestly, church, I, I would never choose to preach this message on my own. Never. It's too hard. But it's, it's where the Lord has us. It's, it's where we're at in this passage of Scripture. And here was, here was a prominent believer. In fact, two days ago, the article, um, the New York Times posted this article, and I would not seen this until they posted it, that for the first time in the 134-year history of the Christian Missionary Alliance, they revoked Robbie's ordination posthumously. They'd never done that before. So what looked healthy and vibrant on the outside was sin sick in the center, on the inside. And what is, what is so important for us to see, church, is that I believe with all of my heart and all of the, all of the people who study and write and teach in this would agree that just like in the book of Revelation, where our tendency is to want to understand what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, I want to know what these things mean. The letters to the churches don't let us do that. They cause us to have to stop and look into our own heart. And if our first natural reflex is to shake our heads and go, oh, what a shame about Robbie and his family. We're missing it. Because Jesus wants us to get the, the, the lumber out of our eyes before we start dealing with the specks in somebody else's. And so this is a relevant word to us as Christians in America, in our culture, in our time, as believers here at Westwood Baptist Church. Who knew? Who knew that Robbie was leading a double life? Well, I'll tell you three people that knew. He did, the women he abused did, and Jesus. Jesus. And that's what we see in our text today. God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 16. My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Hebrews 4.13 says that nothing is hidden from his sight. We are all naked and exposed this minute before him. Okay? Naked and exposed before our king. So we need to sit in that reality for the next few minutes. Jesus alone is the one who can come and, and speak into this little church here and, and give them accommodation and condemn them at the same time. And, and, and so that's what we're going to think about here for a few minutes. He comes with these strong words of, of commendation. It's, it's in that verse there. 
And, and wow, what a commendation it is. All of us would, man, I wish you could say that about us, Jesus. I wish you could say that our works, our love, our faith, our service, our endurance are, are good in your eyes. We all would want to be able to say that, right? But I don't know that we want to talk about what he sees in the heart. And that's, and that's what he talks about here. Every church in this section of Revelation is different. And every church in this community is different. We're not the same as churches any place. We're different. All of us are different in different ways. And Paul tells us in Colossians that in Christ the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And that's what this image of Revela- in Revelation is. The fullness of God in Christ. His, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his holiness, all these characteristics of Jesus are on full display. And he brings every one of those characteristics to bear in these situations that these churches face. All of those characteristics are coming to bear this morning on the situations that you and I face and on what's going on in our lives. And there was, there was a cancer in this church. As good as it looked from the outside, there was a cancer. So we need to let Dr. Jesus speak to us this morning and, and examine our hearts, look, look at our lives. And, and so that's what we're going to do. And, and I've, I've put the headline, you know, just the, the major points up on the screen for you to kind of follow along with your sermon. I have not changed these over the course of two weeks, okay? Now what's in between all these points has changed a little bit over the course of two weeks. Um, but we're going to see... Just this, and, and, and it's a picture of what it is. We've sung it this morning. It comes from, from Psalm 2, where, where God proclaims Jesus his son and does that publicly in a beautiful way in that prophetic passage of Scripture. And, and, and that's what it is. It's, it's the Son of God this morning versus this spirit of compromise, this spirit of immorality that's going on in Thyatira. And that spirit has a name. Her name is Jezebel. So it's Jesus versus Jezebel. All right? Who are you going to take in that one? Let's see. All right? Let's kind of see. His, his vision, his penetrating vision, his assessment, if he can see perfectly, what is it that he sees? We're going to see that. And then how he's going to speak into that and, and the amazing mercy that he offers. We've sung of that already. Our sins are many, but his mercy is more. And so I don't care how deep this morning that... That sin sickness may be in your heart or mine. His mercy. He gives them and us an opportunity to repent. Let us not for a second take that lightly. Okay? His penetrating vision. I've said Thyatira was not much of a city in comparison to the others that we see. It's the least significant in really many ways, but yet it gets the longest letter from Jesus. And and it's just a little trading route town among these seven cities. It was known for its trades. It's a blue collar town. Okay? It's a blue collar town. It was known for its 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 textile industry. It's known for its metal works. Um, it's known for its cloth and its dyeing. In fact Lydia who we see Paul lead to Christ in Acts chapter 16. Lydia was from Thyatira, and some people say Lydia could have been involved in the evangelization of this city and getting this church started here. And so that's what this city is. It's, it's not a prominent city in the ways that some of these others were. It did have temples there, obviously. It had trade guilds there. 
And two of the primary Greek gods or, or pagan gods that were worshipped there were seen as the sons of Zeus. And so into this context where these sons are being worshipped, the son of God shows up and speaks into this situation. And he speaks up with unequal authority. No one has the authority that he does. And this is the only time we see in these letters this phrase, the son of God, used. All right? And, and it does call to mind what was in Psalm 2. It begins with this picture in Psalm 2 of the nations, then and now. Why do the nations rage, the psalmist says? And why do the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? So this is a picture of these nations just raging against God. The rulers are taking counsel together. And he, he goes on in verse 3 to say that the Lord laughs. Literally, he's mocking them. He's sitting in heaven mocking, laughing in derision at the nations that are raging against him. And then it says, I will tell this decree. And this is Jesus speaking in the psalm. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. The ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He has unequal authority. All right. He's not our homeboy. And this Son of God is walking in our midst this morning. All right? We are naked before Him. He sees it all. And with that vision, these flames of fire, there's no facade, there's no defense, there's nothing that can hide what He sees. He sees right through me, He sees right through you. He knows all things, nothing is shielded. Psalm 139 is often taken, we, we read it and we take great comfort in that. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Praise God for that. Amen. Well, it can be true in a critical sense as well. You have searched me, oh God, and you know me. I may be able to wear a mask and play games in front of everybody else, but not you. He has unhindered vision. And he has un. Shakeable strength. It says, the Son of God with eyes flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished, burnished bronze. Brass works were, were famous there in Thyatira. They were known for their metalwork. And, and that brass was that picture of purity, that picture of strength. It's burnished, it's polished, it's shining, it's beautiful. Here's just a picture, if you will, of what is strong and unmovable and holy. So that's this picture that Jesus gives us there. Unshakable strength, unhindered vision. So church, we, we just need to take very seriously, God help us to, to recognize the holiness, the character. Help us to recognize the authority of this one who is speaking to us this morning. That's what we have here in this verse, his penetrating vision. And then with that vision, he can assess, okay? I mean, think about, just, just think for a second about, we're, we're so blessed to be, 30 minutes from some of the best hospitals in the world. All right? After my bike accident, I traveled for a few years with a copy of an x-ray in my wallet. Because every time I'd go through the metal detector, it'd go nuts. You know? And so I'd pull out this x-ray and show it to the officer there, and I said, that's what you heard, okay? What an amazing technology that is. I was reading, I didn't know, it was developed back in 1895 by a German physicist, and it was discovered accidentally. 
And now we have x-ray, we have MRI, we have all these diagnostic tools that look right to the very center of who we are. Jesus has always had that. He's, he's always had that. And with his vision, he's able to look and see, and with his perfect knowledge, then he's able to assess it. He says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your pace and endurance, that your latter works exceeds the first. With this assessment, he's able to commend us, and it's, a, it's beautiful. I mean, I want this to be how Jesus could describe our church. It's, it's amazing. Love and faith, service, endurance. Ephesus had left its first love, right? And Jesus said, remember what you did at first. Thyatira, he says, you're way past what you did at first. You're growing in your faith. You're growing in your works. You're being loving. You're being faithful. You're being diligent. You're being patient. You're making progress. What a commendation. I love what Danny Aiken writes about this. He just helps us kind of get some a grasp around what it means to be loving and faithful, to be service-oriented. The actual word there is, is where we get the word deacon. These are deacon acts that we're talking about here. Dr. Aiken says, A person with a servant's heart is one who, with long-suffering and steadfastness, will give himself deliberately, voluntarily, sacrificially, and joyfully to others in order that he may help meet their needs. He will walk away from his own concerns and his own private interest and give himself his time, his wisdom, his knowledge, his talents, his gifts, in order to help others. Dependable, loyal, loving, patient. Here are the things every church should be, Dr. Aiken writes. And that's, that's what Jesus is commending this church for. What a commendation. But it's got cancer. And no one, well, I can't say no one sees it because Jesus says, yes, there are those in your church who see it. They're just letting it go on. They're just tolerating it, as was the case with Pergamum before it. So all is not quite well. What, what looks healthy on the outside is sick on the inside. And, and Jesus puts a name on it. And that name is Jezebel. And I believe this is a real person with a symbolic name. There was a woman in this church, a self-professing prophet or prophetess. There's, there's no indication. In fact, I don't think she actually had that gift. Uh, I think because Jesus says she calls herself uh, that, that she just took that mantle on herself. And he says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So Jesus sees this. I think some in the church saw it. Some in the church knew it. And it doesn't seem they were doing much about it. And Jesus is, is calling them out on that. Okay. So his assessment there. Jezebel. You don't hear that name often, do you? No, you don't. I mean, you know, parents name their sons and their daughters Paul and David and Mary and Lydia. Those are good biblical names. Sometimes we name our dogs Brutus or Samson or maybe even Goliath. If I had a snake, I was thinking about it, I might name her Lucy, short for Lucifer. You know, <laughs> nobody wants to name anything. But... Uh, you name your cat Jezebel. 
That's the name that critter ought to get. But it's true. You see, Jezebel, the Jezebel that led the nation and the people of God away from God in the Old Testament, this New Testament Jezebel was doing the same thing. So if you go back and read in 1 Kings, Jezebel was the daughter of the king of the Sidonians, and she married Ahab, the king of Israel. And she wore the pants in her family. Make no mistake about that. Make no mistake about it. She sponsored the prophets of Baal and paid for them. In the Old Testament, it tells us that in 1 Kings 18. And she sought to put to death and did so many of the prophets of God. She tried to kill Elijah. And it seems that the pinnacle of her evil is seen later on when Ahab was crying. And he is. He's laying on his bed, not eating and crying. Because his neighbor will not sell him his vineyard. A, a man named Naboth. And Ahab wanted to buy Naboth's vineyard so he could put his garden there. And he said, I'll buy it from you for money or I'll trade it to you for another vineyard. And Naboth said, in obedience to God's word, I cannot sell you my inheritance. So Ahab pouted. Jezebel came to him and said, what are you doing? You're the king. I'll get that vineyard for you. And she brought false charges against Naboth through some characters that were not very seemly. They stoned him to death. And she took possession of his vineyard and gave it. Elijah spoke God's prophetic word over her. And he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by a servant, Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the property of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the property of Jezreel, so that they cannot say, this is Jezebel. And that's what happened. She was tossed out of a window, and before they could bury her, the dogs had eaten all but her skull, palms of her hand, and her feet. But Jezebel is still alive. At least her spirit. A thousand years later in Thyatira. And what the Jezebel in the Old Testament did, which was lead the people of God to compromise, this New Testament Jezebel was doing the same thing. Leading the people to compromise. So what is it that she would have done that caused her to have this name? And Leon Morris, in his commentary on Revelation says this, I'll just read you a couple of sentences. The strong trade guilds, okay? All of these cities were, if you want to use a phrase we understand, they're unionized. Okay? And all of these different trade guilds, these unions, if you will, if you're not a member of that guild, you can't do business. Your, your very survival is at stake in some of these situations. And Leon Morris says the strong trade guilds in this city would have made it very difficult for any Christian to earn his living without belonging to the guild. But membership in the guild, he says, involved attendance at their banquets, which meant eating meat sacrificed to that idol. And these meals, he said, readily turned into sexual looseness, which made matters even worse. So what we have here is that evidently Jezebel... Like in Pergamum, where they were being led to 
believe that you can do this and do that at the same time. Jezebel evidently is influencing them and teaching that it's okay to maintain a dual lifestyle. You can worship God on Sunday or on our day of worship. You can be a professing Christian and at the same time engage in these guilds, in this worldly way of doing business, this worldly way of entertainment, this worldly way of doing religion. And Jezebel seemed to be teaching that you could do... After all, we're under grace, right? We're under grace. And His mercy is more than our sin. We sing that, right? And it's true. But we can take the truth of God and pervert it. And it's deadly to our souls. And evidently Jezebel was doing this. You can do both, she seemed to be teaching. And we'll see in a minute that she was doing that under the auspices of taking people deeper into the faith. Dr. Aiken said this too. Last time I'll quote him, I promise. He says, when the church looks like the world, you have a sick church. When the church acts like the world, you have an impotent church. And when the church plays with the world, you have an unfaithful church. Thyatira was playing with the world. The culture today is not that different from them. We are, as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, we are seen as arrogant if we say that Jesus is the only way. We are seen as judgmental and unloving if we say that the biblical concept of human sexuality and marriage is the way. We are seen as bigoted if we hold to that. And what the church wants to be seen for, at least culturally, by many is for our tolerance and our diversity and the ability to embrace other religions and embrace other ways of thinking to adopt the world's view. And no place is this more prevalent than the area of sex and sexuality. No place. And it's only going to get worse. And in this area, we, not, not just we as a church, but we as individual Christian men and women and young people, we are under assault. Okay? Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking to whom he may devour. And it's not so much a frontal assault as it is bait laid out for us to walk into. And with the rise of the Internet and the secrecy, we believe, and the accessibility and the sexual immorality that they had to go to a guild meeting to a, to a pagan temple to get, we just have to go sit down at our desk. That's all we have to do. And the falsehood of Jezebel has crept into the church where we get to thinking that what we do in secret doesn't matter. And what we do that no one else can see doesn't matter. And in some way, Christ doesn't really care about what we click into. Or as long as our doctrine and our beliefs are okay, this other's... And Jesus will have nothing to do with that. Nothing. Look at his assessment of what he sees. 
I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I don't know. We're not told how this opportunity came about, when it came or how it came. But Jesus is being merciful to Jezebel and those who follow her. He has offered them repeatedly opportunities to repent and they've said no. I don't know when it happened or how, but they, they said no. So he says, behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. You see that connection there? They repent of what she has been doing because they have adopted that as well. I will, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Here is the Son of God. He tells us in Matthew, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. And that Son of God with all authority in heaven and earth is now speaking this word of assessment to his people. And those who are guilty, not so much even of the sin of the immorality, but the sin of the compromise, and even greater than that, the sin of not repenting. That, that's what's being called out here. It's worse than the sin of compromise is the sin of refusing the mercy of God. And the consequences could not be more severe. And so, I mean, we can, we can try to assume and, and assess what exactly is this judgment that he is calling down on Jezebel and her children. And by children, I don't think it means her human progeny, okay? This isn't kids of her illicit affairs. This is children of her spiritually, okay? Children who bear resemblance, children who bear her characteristics, okay? So um, Jezebel, Jesus says, I'm going to cast you onto a sickbed. It's interesting, is it not? That the place of her judgment and punishment has been the place of her pleasure. It'll get us every time. And, it, and it's some disease or physical affliction, some sickness of some sort. I'm, we're not sure, but I'm going to cast you onto a sick bed. All right? That's, that's, his, that's his word to her. And those who are aligned with her spiritually, those who commit adultery with her. And again, this isn't those who have been with her in her bed. These are those who are with her in her beliefs. Those who have been led by her to adopt her understanding of spirituality. And, and it's spiritual unfaithfulness, it's spiritual idolatry, just as sure as it is physical. And the commentators really, I've, I've, I noticed over the last few weeks studying for this, that some see this more about an application to spiritual idolatry, and it is that. But it is so clear to me that the physical act of immorality, that, that word where we get pornea, pornography, that's this word. So there's a physical aspect to this, too, that, that is just a picture of the spiritual reality that's going on. And he says, you must repent of her deeds. Repent of going down this path. Repent of what she did is to repent of what we've all been involved in, Jesus says to them. And so that's the picture. You bear her resemblance. You bear her immorality. You need to repent of that. Jesus gives them that opportunity. But they did not. 
And he said the same thing really in John when he was speaking to the to the Pharisees there. You are of your father, the devil, because his characteristics are seen in you. Well, it's here true. And this characteristic of sexual immorality is just prevalent. And I will strike her children dead. What a hard statement that is. Literally, it says in the ground, I will kill them with death. Merciful Jesus? Gentle, lowly Jesus? Is the Holy Son of God with flames of fire in his eyes who looks deep into the reality of every human being and will hold us accountable? And the judgment on those who refuse his grace and who spurn his invitation to to repentance is a violent eternal death. He says, I'm going to judge. And look at the motivation for that judgment. Notice what it says in verse 23. All the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart and will give to each one according to your works. God will be glorified in the judgment of hell. We will see that in Revelation. Our Lord Jesus will be glorified in the outpouring of his wrath. We will see that. We see it throughout his word. And here his discipline, his judgment, his strong words against this sin and against this spiritual idolatry and immorality. The point of that is ultimately his glory. And here's, the, here's, here's what's so cool about this. Here's, this lies at the root even of church discipline. Is that if the people of God will be faithful to the word of God. To do things the way God calls us to do them. Then we stand upon the rock of his faithfulness. And we can be encouraged. Even as hard as that is sometimes. We can be encouraged. That God will be faithful to himself. To his word. And so as Jesus says. I want the churches to know what I'm saying. And I want the churches to see what I'm doing. This is is for the church. This is not for a lost world. This is for the church to see the holiness of God, the holiness of Jesus, responding to our compromise and our sexual immorality, which is a picture of our spiritual immorality. He wants the church to see that. And he wants the faithful of the church to be encouraged, to be emboldened, to say, yes, God is going to stand behind his word. Jeremiah, I was reading Jeremiah earlier this week. Jeremiah faced the same situation with false prophets that he came up against. And here's what Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 20. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. So the Lord is a warrior on Jeremiah's behalf. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed for they will not succeed. Their eternal, their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. Verse 12 in Jeremiah 20 says, O Lord of hosts who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and mind. Let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. The faithful of God, as hard as it is to stand up against the evil and the, and the spiritual immorality, the, the, the compromise, that we, as hard as it is to stand up against that sometimes, Jesus says, stand up against it with me and I'm on your side. And you can be encouraged by how you see me work. 
And, and that's the picture here. Jesus wants the church to see. The faithful in the church will be encouraged. The faithless in the church, those who are straying, well, the same response that they will get is what we saw in Acts. When Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead, the fear of the Lord filled this place. It tells us in the book of Acts. People took the faith seriously. They took the gospel seriously. They took the church seriously. And so this judgment from Jesus, the one who can sees everything, we can't hide anything from him. He knows our hearts. He knows our mind. Literally, the kidneys is the word there. He sees very in the very gut of who we are. And to the faithful, he says, notice what he says. To the rest of you in Thyatira, and here's the characteristics to the rest of them, those who are faithful in the church, who do not hold to this teaching and who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. Hold fast, Jesus says. The same thing the writer of Hebrews says. Let us hold fast to our confession of faith without wavering, because he who promised us is faithful. Hold fast. What does it mean to hold fast? Well, here it says, you do not hold to this teaching. Here's the spiritual truth of this. You cannot hold on to the truth of the gospel and the ways of Christ and hold on to the ways of the world at the same time. We can't hold on to both. And Jesus commends them. He says, you're not holding on to the false teaching, holding on to this teaching. You have not embraced that doctrine that she espouses and that her children are following. And secondly, he says, you have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them. That's Jesus' assessment of this spiritual Truth, okay? This, this deep things that they seem to be learning from Jezebel. Some commentators say this is the height of divine sarcasm. And I kind of like that idea. <laughs> they say that what Jesus is saying here is these deep things of Satan that you call deep, they're not really deep at all. It's just evil. Some say that's what he's talking about here. Others say that what this is a reference to is maybe, maybe Jezebel was teaching them that in order to really appreciate the gospel the way you need to, you really need to know sin deeply. You know, you need to know what it's like to be this kind of lost before you can understand what it's like to be this kind of saved. And so she was teaching that by becoming intimately aware of what's going on in these in these cults, what's going on in these guilds, what's going on in this immoral worship, is really going to be a path to spiritual maturity. You're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to know God more deeply than those other simpletons over there because you understand this better than they do. And I think there's an element of that as well. I think that's probably the reason why the Apostle Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The simpler, the better. Not that the simple truth of that gospel is not going to take us into the deep doctrinal truths of Christ, but we don't need to know the depth of evil to understand the depth of the gospel, right? Amen? Parents, you do not need your children straying before they'll appreciate Jesus. Because the path down that path, the, the road down that path is one time, many times one they cannot turn back from. But Jezebel seemed to be teaching that. 
Again, Jeremiah gives us a good word there. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Amen? That's, that's, that was that. So maybe Jezebel taught that the way to grow in your faith is to become an expert in sin. And Jesus says, no. You know why? Because we can't do that. We're too weak. We are too weak to hold on to both at the same time. We just can't do it. We can't dive into evil and be untouched by it. Because what maybe begins as just a simple acquaintance all of a sudden becomes an attraction. And that's what seemed to be going on here. Jesus said, You don't hold to that teaching. Thirdly, he says, I don't lay any other burden on you. I think this comes from Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, where the Gentile converts there were told, you don't need to follow Jewish law. You just need to avoid what is sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality because those two are indicative of spiritual compromise. So don't lay any more rules on you than what you already have, which is simply to stay on the path with Jesus. And he says... Hold fast to what you have until I come. He's saying persevere. And you know what's ironic about this in some ways? It's what's interesting to me is that if you want to make progress, Jesus says, you need to hold on to the old things. Hold on to the simple truths of the gospel. If you want to make progress, persevere in in the gospel. So you hold on with that foundation. I've spent a lot of time over the last, really the last couple of months in Jude. I encourage you to read the book of Jude. And I would, it's just amazing to me. I've kind of tried to make it a a pattern to read through it at least a couple of times a week. Um, We might get a sermon out of Jude when we get to the end of the letters, just because I think it's so relevant to what we see there. But Jude writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about your common salvation, I find it necessary to write appealing to you to to contend, he says, to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Why is this faith so important that we contend for it, that we fight for it? Here's why. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That was the danger Jude was pointing out. That's the danger in Thyatira. And Jesus says, hold fast, faithful. Hold fast. Persevere to the end. And what's his promise? Look there right quick. The one who conquers and who keeps my works... Until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. The rod of iron, the version that you heard earlier from Rick said an iron scepter. That's a, that's a good way to see that. It's, it's an, a picture of authority. You'll rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. And even I myself have received authority from my Father, Jesus says. And then he says, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So for every church and every believer in every age, Jesus has a promise to us if we will hold fast and remain faithful. And it's a promise, it's a word of encouragement, and it's directed to those who overcome. Okay? 
And those who keep, listen to this, not just keep my words. Jesus doesn't say that here. He doesn't say keep my word. He doesn't say even obey my commands. He says keep my works. It's very unusual. How do we keep the work of Jesus? I was meditating on that this week. What does it mean there? And, and I was taken back to John chapter 6 where the people came to Jesus and, and, and they said, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus gave them a simple answer. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. I think at the bottom of it, at the root of it, that's, that's what the works of Jesus are. It's belief in him, trust in him, loving him, being faithful to him as we saw in this. To the one who conquers, there's that word again. And we're going to see it over and over and over. And that's the whole picture of Revelation, right? The one who conquers is the one who was slain. The one who is on the throne is the one who is in the grave. And the way for his people to ascend to that throne and to conquer and, and accomplish that too is through death, through suffering. So Jesus is saying to those people in Thyatira, you're persecuted, you're imprisoned, you suffer, and you're even going to die. And that's the road to glory. That's the road to conquering. That's where you'll find life. That's where you'll find my reward. Keep it, he says. Keep it. Hold fast to it. You're not justified by these works. We're not saved by them, but these works are fruit of that salvation. And Jesus says, hang on to it. And look at his promise. It's kind of weird. It's, it's a strange promise. You will reign with Christ, he says, and I will give him the morning star. And I'm not real sure what it means to reign with Christ. And I'm even less sure of what it means to reign with a rod of iron and smash the nations. Unless, this isn't in my notes, I'm just, I'm just going to think out loud here. This just came to me. That can be very dangerous sometimes. Some of you have been here long enough to know, uh-oh, what's he about to say? No. Um, you know, when Jesus returns with, in all of his glory and his redeemed church is there to see that, and he's, he's reigning and ruling. And we're watching him judge. And we are a part of that. We're on his side, right? Somebody ought to amen. We're on his side. We're going we're gonna to see his victory. And we're going to see it literally. Graphically. And we're there with him. So in one sense, we're reigning with him. My mind went back to Ephesians 2. God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he has raised us up and seated us with him, Paul says in the heavenly realm. I think being seated with Christ, we share in some way the authority of Christ, and we share that in his dominion over the nations. It's going to end well for us, okay? Let's just leave it at that. It's going to end well for us. And even more than that, he says, I will give him the morning star. I believe it's a picture of just receiving Christ himself. But even then, it's even more than that. The Greeks saw the morning star as Venus. And I know we, we know it, it's a planet, but they saw it as a star. And it was a sign of victory. And the Roman army had this standard, had this on their standard, this, this image of Venus, this image of this goddess. And that was a picture of victory. It was a picture of accomplishment. It was a picture of strength. And I believe this is what we have here. The conqueror who is Jesus 
and those who are with him, participating with him, have this image. I will give you the morning star. We win. We win. Let me give you some points of application real quick. First, keep growing, keep going. Okay? They were commended for their works being more than they had been. So this Christian journey that we're on church, as slow of a slog as it is sometimes. And sometimes it is two forward and one back. And one forward and two back. But there's still a progress. And we're to be commended for that. You're to be commended in that constant, albeit painfully slow, walk of faith. Of love, service, faithfulness, perseverance. Just being, as, as Danny Aiken said, dependable, loyal, loving, and patient, and enduring. Okay? Keep growing and going in that. Number two, pursue holiness. The Son of God, with eyes like flames of fire, is peering into every man's heart this morning and every woman's heart, every young person's heart. And he is calling us to a pursuit of holiness. God has not called us to impurity, but he has called us in holiness, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, strive for holiness, for without it no one will see God. This is not optional. The fight against sin is not optional. And you know what? The Billy Graham rule and windows on our doors are not enough. When we first built this building, the, the doors to, to the pastor's study back there was just a solid door. And we said, nope, it needs to be changed. There needs to be a window in there. It's not enough. And everybody gave Mike Pence such a hard time because he said he followed the Billy Graham rule. Praise God he did. And still does as far as we know. But so did Ravi Zacharias. He publicly said in 45 years of marriage to Margie, I've never been unfaithful in any way. So the Billy Graham rule and windows on the doors are not enough. And listen, church, here's the urgency of it. Our children have never spent more time in front of a screen than they have over the last 11 months. And most adults have never spent more time in front of a screen than they have over the last 11 months. And statistics are frightening. They're frightening. 70% of you men, of us, 70%, 7 in 10, between the age of 18 and 34, visit a porn site in a typical month. Christians included. 17 billion with a B is what's spent on pornography in America. Just in America. One in six women frequent pornography sites. This one scares us to death. 90% of children between the ages of 8 and 16 have viewed pornography online. 90%. So we are not immune to this church.
It matters what we do with our eyes. It matters what we do with our bodies. And I don't care if you're 8 or 88. That temptation is there. 1 Thessalonians 4. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathens who do not know God. Do not be deceived, Galatians 6 tells us. God is not mocked, and a man will reap what he sows. Joe Carter wrote on the Gospel Coalition website, He said it was not until after his death that the truth could, quote, squeak past the defenses of money and power that all too often silence victims. Robbie Zacharias may have escaped justice in this world, but his family, golly. Robbie may have escaped justice in this world, but no one escapes justice in the next. And Carter wrote this, no one can know what transpired between Zacharias and God at his judgment. But we do know that God's justice is being done one way or the other. And we also know that the sexually immoral, apart from the righteousness of Christ, do not inherit the kingdom of God. God help us. Holiness is what we were called to, church. Thirdly, where holiness is missing, repent. It's, it's simple. We're called to repent. It is a personal responsibility and it is a gracious gift that Jesus even offers us the opportunity. Oh, how gracious and good he is. And Jesus didn't call out Jezebel and her children because of immorality. He called them out because they spurned his grace. They didn't repent when they had the opportunity. That's what he called them out for. And he's giving us time. He's giving you and me, us as a church, time to repent of those places where we've compromised, where we've committed spiritual immorality through sexual immorality. So here, like I said, this is not anything, this is not a message any pastor in his right mind would choose to preach. But I don't know of anything that we need to hear more urgently. Purity in the church, finally is a corporate responsibility. The problem in this church is that they were tolerating it. The letters addressed to Christians. And it could be that some of them were dabbling in it a little bit and others were immersed in it. And whatever way it was, in some way the church found themselves tolerating this. Maybe thinking it was okay or maybe just thinking we'll turn a blind eye to it or maybe thinking we'll just let Jesus deal with it. And the way Jesus chooses to deal with it is corporately. As the people of God follow the word of God, compassionately, graciously, seeking reconciliation, seeking people to be brought back into the church. And so whatever was going on in here, they weren't performing church discipline. They weren't doing what should have been done. And when we do that within the church, we care for one another. We counsel one another. Men, if, if this is a struggle for us, For God's sake, for his glory's sake, and for your well-being, come along beside another brother and just humble ourselves and say so. Women, encourage one another. Talk to one another. Parents, parents, listen, know what your children are seeing. Pry if you have to. Make them mad if you have to. Infringe on their privacy if you have to. But know. Know. And then seek to respond in a godly way gracious, truthful way. Okay? Don't, don't just slam on them somehow. 
It's interesting that Jesus, in this strong condemnation, still had a sweet word to say to this church. Maybe there's a lesson there. Medicine goes down easier with sugar. But hear the diagnosis and take the medicine. Here's, here's what we hold to. Here's, this, is, this is what we hold to. It's, it's, it's from the book of Jude. It's the last two verses in the letter. I'll just read it to you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you the glory because you alone are able to keep us from stumbling. And you alone are merciful and gracious enough to come along beside us and pick us up when we do. You love us enough to point out our sin. You love us enough to call us out in our compromise. You love us enough, Lord, to give us a diagnosis and show us what we need to do. So, Father, I pray for every soul that's hearing my voice. Peer deep into our hearts with your blazing eyes and show us that which needs to be confessed and repented of and turned from. And Lord, even if it's just a dabbling, a taste of poison is deadly. Show us that, Lord. Heal men's hearts after you've crushed them. Heal women's souls after they've been confronted. Heal the hearts of young people. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. And God, I ask this morning that if there's anyone here who's never trusted in Jesus. Father, on one hand, may we see him and be afraid and fear the judgment. But on the other hand, Lord, may that soul see that he took that wrath, that our spiritual adultery, that our sexual immorality deserves. Jesus, you, as we've sung this morning, took that punishment upon yourself. That whoever would confess their sin and just trust in you would be saved. So, Father, I pray that. That some soul that's lost and in darkness would turn to Jesus and be saved this morning. And I pray that in his holy, precious name. Amen.